Sorry, kids, uh, no children's sermon today. Uh, well, Pastor Jeff is away. Uh, actually, I just decided not to do it because of the meeting afterwards and wanted to try to keep it short. So we'll pick it up next week, though. This week, we are in Isaiah chapter 43. If you have your Bibles, turn with me there. If not, there are Bibles in the seats in front of you. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 to 7. Uh, we are going through a series out of 1 Corinthians, but I thought in light of uh, us considering moving uh, our church family's home, that uh, I'd do a couple sermons towards that in the next two weeks. So Isaiah 43 this week, Matthew 6 next week. Uh, so Isaiah 43, verses 1 to 7. I want to do these two sermons as a way to love you as we consider this, a way to shepherd you. I care about you, and I know that uh, this is a very exciting, thrilling time, and also a time where we can get distracted or anxious or even uh, have some division. And so <clears throat> there is a lot going on, and in light of that, I wanted to take a couple sermons and look at God's Word and try to point us in a certain direction. <clears throat> so, uh, we are considering St. Joe's. We are doing our due diligence. We are running numbers. We are looking at all the pros and cons. We're getting inspections and so on and so forth. But you know as well as I do that we can only know what we can know, and we don't know what God knows. And so we have to do this by faith. We have to do this resting in God, looking at Him, trusting in His provision or not. At the end of the day, what we want is God. And God has given us to know one thing, and that thing is simply this. He is with us. That's it. The main thing here isn't whether or not we buy St. Joe's and move. The issue is whether God is our God. And so I thought there isn't a better place in Scripture to see that than Isaiah 43, verses 1 to 7. Let me read it. I'll pray, and then I'll give you a little background, and then we'll jump into what God has for us here from St. Joe's. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sheba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I will give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will sail to the north. Give up and to the south. Do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we uh, desperately need to hear your word. It is true. It is solid. It is unchanging. It is eternal. It is right, and God, we so, so, so many times are so hard of hearing. Um, we, we want it, but we don't want it. 
And so, God, would you, by your Spirit, incline our hearts, open our ears to hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The writer of this book is Isaiah. He's an interesting character. He's likely of noble blood. He was born uh, with many silver spoons and many advantages. Uh, He is of what I'm calling ninja-level genius. He is one of the great geniuses ever to walk the earth. His book, which is mostly poetry, is considered by those who study such things to be like top five ancient poetry ever written. He's great. His ministry uh, to God's people took part over the better part of 60 years. His ministry spanned at least four kings over Judah. And Jewish tradition holds that he was martyred for his preaching of God's word by being sawn in two, which may be alluded to in Hebrews eleven seventeen. Isaiah's prophet two forty often held to be in two parts. Part one is chapters one through thirty nine. Part two forty to sixty six. And so our chapter falls at the beginning of the second part of Isaiah's prophecy. And here. Uh, God's people have been disciplined by God for their idolatry, for their faithlessness. And God's discipline turned the, took the form of God bringing a nation to uh, conquer them, Babylon, and lead them off into exile. So Isaiah has now gone to God's people in exile in Babylon, and he's preaching this to them. And in the second half of the book, it takes on cosmic proportions of God's redemption that conquers the entire world. And so God comes to his people and says, I'm going to save you, and then I'm going to take that salvation and make it worldwide. <clears throat> and so we see that here in our uh, thing. So, so the second half of the book is, is comfort. It begins in chapter 40 with these words in verse 1, comfort, comfort my people. Right? So God's people are in exile. They're far from the place that God has given them, and God sends a messenger to them to comfort them. And the comfort that God gives them is simply this, me. Comfort, comfort my people with what? Behold your God. That's it. God is to be their comfort. And in Isaiah 41, we read, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And then in Isaiah 43, this thought of comfort that is God himself coming reaches full bloom. Fear not, for I am with you. And so here we have the gospel, don't we? The gospel is God himself coming to his people in the form of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and fear not, for I am with you. So that's what this is about. So what I want to do is take these seven verses draw out three truths from them and apply them to what we're looking at as a church family uh, and uh, hopefully bring you some comfort as we consider these things. Let's begin by noticing the language of salvation in our verses. Chapter 43 begins with the word but. It's following on the end of chapter 42 where uh, we see God's discipline of his people. But now... God turns from discipline for his sin to salvation of his people. We read of God creating his people. But now, says the Lord, he who created you, he who formed you. Now, this creation here isn't Genesis 1 and 2, 
kind of creation. This creation here is Exodus. This creation here is referring to God's redemption of his people and thus creating his people, right? So this language is more new birth than initial creation. This language is God creating for himself a people out of all peoples, a special people chosen for God that he places his name upon, that he will love and save and cherish as a special people among all of the peoples. So this language here isn't creation, Genesis 1. This is Exodus. This is taking his people for himself, saving them. And this is, of course, what God is doing for his people even now. The church are his people among all peoples. We are his special, beloved, chosen people. He is recreating us as a new Adam, as a new creation in Christ. That is what Christ came to do. Now, we see in these verses that God does all of the saving. He saves us all the way until the end. Look at uh, verses 5 to 7. Fear not, I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. That is, God will save all of his people from all time, all over the place. The picture here is God's salvation is a finished one. All of his people in the end will be saved. We notice that God gives some geographic, uh, in, in verse 3, some places. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sheba in exchange for you. We're familiar with Egypt. It's a very familiar place. Cush and, and Sheba are rather obscure, bywater, backwater places. And what God is saying, even in the most well-known places or even in the least known backwater places, I'll gather all of my people from everywhere. There's nowhere that you will be that I will not save you from. And so this is God's salvation. He's doing it. All of the action in these verses is God's action. I have called you. I will be with you. I am the Lord your God. I give men in exchange for you. Fear not, I am with you. Everyone who is called by name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed made, I am with you. And so this is God's salvation. In the words of Jonah, chapter 2, verse 9, Salvation is from the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He is doing it. He does it from beginning to end. All over this world, he will save all of his people. This is his plan. He's accomplishing it. He will finish it from start to completion, beginning to end, eternity past, eternity future. He is the alpha and the omega of your and my salvation. If you are going to be saved, if we are going to be saved, then God must do it. This does not at all remove the necessity of your repentance and belief. Those who repent and believe in the gospel, who turn from their sin and turn towards Christ as their only salvation, God is and will save. It just means that you can't do it in and of yourself, can you? Your faith isn't an assist to God. Your faith doesn't improve or strengthen what God is doing. Faith is just simply looking to God who has done it. And He must do it from beginning to end. I wanted to draw that out and apply it to what we're considering as far as St. Joe's. 
And one thing that I want to draw out here is we are about one thing as God's people, and that is the gospel. The church is about God's salvation of sinners through repentance and faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. That's it. One thing that can happen with churches, whether they're trying to build a new building or remodel an old building or purchase one and make it theirs, is that becomes the focus. The building becomes the mission. The building becomes the thing. We don't want to do that. God's salvation of sinners, you and I and those who have yet to believe, is the thing. We don't want to get sidetracked with a building. We, are, we want to be about God. So even as you're excited about St. Joe's, be excited about it. Be excited about it for God's sake. Be excited about maybe the prospect of what God could do in bringing more to faith in Christ. But it is about God's glory, brothers and sisters. It's not about a building. That building can help us accomplish our mission to make disciples of the Rhinelander area, then let's go for it. If not, then let's not. Let's keep God at the center. A second is as you have considered the prospect of purchasing St. Joe's, I've talked with lots of you and I have met with many who are very excited, thrilled, really. It's been kind of fun. I, I didn't know how you would respond. Uh, I, I thought, especially those of you who have been at Pine Grove for some time, some of you going back to when we met out at Fort and were uh, not yet called Pine Grove, or when we were meeting at the McNaughton School, I think that was it, right? McNaughton, is that right? Yeah? And then we bought this, per- purchased this property that this would be a difficult thing for you. Uh, my family recently moved here two and a half years ago. And uh, for the first year, year and a half, as we were asking our kids, you know, like, how you doing in Rhinelander? What do you... How is it in comparison? They always thought Rippin was better. The Rippin house is better. The Rippin house is better. We had more memories there, and now not so much. So some of you have made lots of memories here. It's a big deal for you. I've been surprised to see how excited most of you are. Now, um, let's make sure as we go through this excitement and this thrill that as Dennis prayed the building doesn't somehow become our God. God alone can save. Right? A building, nothing can ever be our Savior. In fact, a little later on in uh, chapter 43, in verse 11, it says, I am the Lord and besides me there is no Savior. Now this is kind of Christianity 101. We all know that there is no other name given under heaven by which men might be saved but Christ. You all believe that, right? We have no Savior but God. God alone saves. And yet you know how subtle it is and how easily attached you become to things of this world as your Savior, functionally. They become what drives you. And this can be anything. It can be food. It can be what you wear. It can be your job. It can be your spouse, how your kids are doing. It can be the amount of money you have in the bank. Right? It can be a building. And one of the things that is happening in, Isaiah, in God's people this time is that they are being disciplined for turning to gods other than the one true living God who alone is their Savior. And that look at who God is, brothers and sisters. Look at how patient He is. Look at how intent He is on accomplishing our salvation. God alone can save us. We are to seek first the kingdom of God for God's glory, and God will then add things that are so much less important like St. Joe's onto us, if he wills. Now, Isaiah actually digs down 
into the salvation of God in verses 3 and 4. We see here that God saves his people by substituting other peoples, by sacrificing, if you will, other peoples. Let let me read it, verses 3 and 4. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sheba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, I will give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. All right, what's going on here? Without getting into too much of the background, let's just take Egypt, the more familiar one. Israel, God's people, at one time were enslaved in Egypt. Egypt owned them. Egypt was their father. Egypt was their mother. Egypt was their master, their Lord. And God came to his people and destroyed Egypt to save his own. He gave Egypt as the ransom price in order to save Israel. Now, one thing to get real straight here, brothers and sisters, it wasn't like good guy versus bad guy here. Israel wasn't the good guy, and Egypt the bad guy. Israel, if you weren't aware, was worshiping other idols just like Egypt was. Israel wasn't a holy, pure, clean nation, and so God picked them. This is grace. God came and chose one and not another, all because he loved them, all because he honored them. The point is, God destroyed one to save another. God, through all of the plagues, the killing of the firstborn in Egypt, the destruction of Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea, slaughtered one nation to save another. And this tells us a lot about God and his love for us, isn't it? Now, I don't know if it is permissible here to say that this is foreshadowing Christ. But the language of substituting one for another surely calls that to memory, doesn't it? We read in Romans 8 that God did not even withhold His only Son, but gladly, graciously gave Him up for us all. He gave His Son as a ransom in exchange for us as a substitute for our sins. We sang that in O Sacred Head Now Wounded. He took the cross. He took the wrath of God that you and I deserve. We have removal of a sin, atonement for our sin, because Christ died in our place. This is what God has been doing from the beginning, hasn't he? Adam and Eve deserved death. Instead, God killed animals and clothed their nakedness and their shame. 
Israel, for all of their sin, deserved death, and God allowed substitutionary animals in their place for their sin. And now we have a perfect lamb substituted in our place for our sin. And he is the final and full sacrifice, the perfect, the only substitute. He alone paid the price, the ransom to free us from our sin. God's anger at us, his rightful wrath, is no more because he spent it on his son. So how do we apply this to St. Joe's? Well, hopefully it just causes you to worship God for this gospel, and that's it. That you have everything you need because you have Christ. That in one sense, this could be exciting, a new building, but we have Christ, and so what else do we need? Cause you to be content for what we have right now. You're packed in here like sardines. Look around. You've been like this for 10 years, and it's only, this problem's only getting worse. And thank God for it. Let's be content with it. Let's not go forward with the idea of St. Joe's because of discontentedness, because we have Christ. What else do you need? And if God is willing to exchange nations for us, His Son for us, what else won't He gladly give you along with Christ? Let's be content with Christ. But even more so, this should here serve to show you again, if you struggle to believe it, of God's nature of unthinkable generosity. This is the problem you and I have. We know God is generous. We know God is gracious. We just struggle to believe that's true for us, for you. You have things in your life. I don't know what they are. Well, I do know some of what they are. And you don't have a problem believing that God is good and God is wise. You have a problem believing that God is good and wise for you. And he'll do it for you. You don't have a problem that God can do it. You have a problem if God will do it. Is he generous? Is he giving? And I, here it is. What, what, what won't he give exchange for you? Doesn't that language in verse 4 convince you all the more? You are precious in his eyes. You are honored. I love you. I will give my only son in exchange for you. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is telling you about what God is like. You can apply that to St. Joe's. You can apply that to your marriage. You can apply that to your workplace. You can apply that to the illness you're wrestling with, your spouse is wrestling with. You can apply that to the loss, the grief that you're experiencing in life. God is an unthinkably generous, gracious God. Now be careful here. This isn't name it and claim it stuff. This isn't, well, I guess St. Joe's is our stuff. God might know it's better for us to not have St. Joe's. The point is, God what is he like? What is he like towards you? What is he like towards us, his people? He is not stingy, brothers and sisters. Quit thinking that's true. Quit believing the lie that God is a God who's constantly withholding from you, that he's putting things on a string and always pulling it a little bit ahead of your grasp. It isn't true. He's given you his son. 
See, the problem is you and I constantly believe our circumstances and our internal emotions more than what God's Word has said. You are the greatest liar to yourself. Your internal record that's playing, your emotions are consistently telling you lies. And here God is saying the truth. Who are you going to believe? Tomorrow morning when you wake up and face another Monday and all the hardship, what are you going to believe? Are you going to believe, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One, your Savior. I gave my Son as your ransom. I gave my Son in exchange for you. You are precious in my eyes, honored. I love you. I gave my Son for you. What are you going to believe tomorrow? What are you going to believe over the next month as we look at the St. Joe's thing? That is, are we going to walk through this by faith? We're going to walk through this believing God's word about what he's like? Are we going to walk through this by fear and fighting and all the anxiety that comes with it? How are we going to walk through this? I think this kind of love for God should also, as we walk through this consideration of St. Joe's, kill any kind of fighting any kind of selfish, inconsiderate, not thinking about what is good for everybody else. And that's all the way down from the petty, oh, it's another 10 minutes i got to drive if we go there, all the way to the big things, I, I might have to give more. If God is our God and He loves us like this and we are all His, why would we bicker or grumble or fight? That is going to be a temptation in the next month. Why would we do that? All right, that isn't enough for you. Let's look at the greatest joy of this, and it's simply these words, I am with you. Verse 1, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. I I am with you. Verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. I will be with you. This, of course, is the end result of all that God has done from creation through the fall through Christ. This is the point of it all, brothers and sisters. The goal for which God created this world, the goal for which God is redeeming His people in this world through the death and burial and resurrection and reign and coming of His Son, is this one thing. So that God might be with His people. That's how God created the beginning. He created a world, created two people in His image, Adam and Eve, and He dwelt in holy fellowship with them in a garden. He was with them. Now because of sin, death has entered. Death is separation from God. And everything in the Bible from that point through Christ until the end is God doing what is necessary to be with His people again. That's the point of it all. The point isn't to just Take away your sin, and that's it. The end goal is not sin removal. The end goal is not just to give you a righteousness that you don't have. The point of those things is so that God might be with you. At the end of history, the one great truth is there, finally fully realized. And it's just this. God is with us. That's it. There is no greater joy for a believer than the joy of thinking that we now, right now, have by faith God with us, by His Spirit here, and one day 
it will no longer be by faith, but by sight. You will see God. He will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Death we will be no more because we will now be with him and he will be with us forever. That's the point of it all. That is the point of it all. Is there anything more precious than hearing? I am with you. Kids, children, you get injured sometimes, you run and you fall or you touch something hot that you shouldn't have or whatever and you're hurt and you're crying. Is there any more comforting word than when daddy comes and says, don't worry, daddy's here. Or when mommy gets down and scoops you up and says, don't worry, mommy's here. Is there any better news than that? Or maybe when you're in crisis situation and nobody is present they can handle the situation, the paramedics arrive or the doctor arrives and says, don't worry, I'm here, we got this, it's going to be okay. And here we have the God of the universe, the creator of everything, coming to his people saying, fear not. I am with you. I am with you. Now, of course, we cannot neglect to remember that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is named Emmanuel. He is God with us. The God of Christianity, the one true living God, is not like any of the other gods, false gods, who are always distant, always far off. Our God is the kind who takes on flesh and comes and dwells and walks among us. That's our God. He is the kind of God who hangs on a cross, bleeding and dying, taking all of our wretched, putrid sins among Himself, dying in our place so that we can be with Him forever. So, brothers and sisters, it matters not where we meet as a church. It doesn't matter if we worship Him at 5844 Forest Lane or at 1350 Stevens Street. It doesn't matter if we worship Him in this building or that. This, the thing is this, God is our God in Christ and He is with us. This is what makes Pine Grove, Pine Grove. God in heaven is our God and He is with us by His Spirit. This is what makes a church a church. It is God. If you sweep away everything that makes us who we are, the one thing left is that God is our God. And He has eternally promised to never leave us nor forsake us because His Son is at His right hand and is interceding for us. Now, I'm not saying this only to help you prepare to move to 1350 Stephen Street. That's still to be decided. I think it's a good idea. I'm all in. Unless there's new information that I don't know yet. I'm saying this because the only way we can even consider this truth and do it by faith and do it in godliness and contentment and in love for each other is if this truth is foremost in your brain and your heart that God is with us. If we stay here, God is with us. If we go to a new building, God is with us. I think this decision to move to a new building is insignificant in light of the wonder of that truth. It's almost nothing. 
So don't be anxious. God is with you. When temptation comes, turn to God who is with you. When you and we face an uncertain future, God is the God of all time. We won't know everything. Doesn't matter. God is with us. God is with us. Let's pray. God, I praise you for your word. Thank you that in Christ what we've read here is true. You have recreated us anew in Christ. We are your people. We have reason to not fear because you have redeemed us and called us by name. You are mine. Uh, we are yours. So God, would you comfort us with these truths? Would you dig them down deep in our lives? Would you help us to apply these truths to what we're going to be facing here as a church that we might do it by faith and so honor you? We might do it trusting that you are our God and we are your people. And so God, please help us now. In Jesus' name, amen.